entered the Paracast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. Okay, this week we go right into the Paracast. No intermediate introductions. Right into the show featuring Stan Friedman and Kathleen Martin, the co-authors of a new book called Captured, The Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience. Kathleen Martin, I'd like to start with you here. When did you first learn about your aunt's and your uncle's close encounter experience? I learned about their close encounter experience on September 20th, 1961. Uh, It was my mother, Janet Miller, that Betty called on that afternoon after they had had some sleep after they arrived home at 5 o'clock that morning. So they, Betty awakened at uh, probably about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, and she called my mother, I would say, about 4 o'clock that afternoon. Okay, and at that point she had concerns over what had happened to her and her husband? She just wanted to tell my mother. I don't know if you would say it was concerns about what happened to them, but she wanted somebody to talk to. To, to share her experience with, and she felt that she could trust my mother because in 1957, my mother had seen a UFO. Okay. Can you tell us something about that experience, maybe get a perspective here? Yes. Um, it was on a Friday evening. She was uh, en route to the grocery store. She went grocery shopping on Friday nights, and uh, she was in South Kingston, New Hampshire, southern New Hampshire, near the Plasto, New Hampshire line, and she saw a cigar-shaped craft, silent, hovering in the sky. She saw a smaller object flying around it. She stopped her vehicle, ran to a nearby house. The people in that house uh, went outside with her, and they all observed the the smaller objects uh, fly into the craft, and then the craft took off. Can I can I ask a question about that? These um, smaller crafts were they disc shaped craft? Uh, you know, I asked my mother uh, if she could describe it for me or if she could draw it for me, and mm-hmm. she said that so many years had passed that she just couldn't even remember what shape they were. And apparently back in 1961, uh, as far as I can tell, no one asked her that question. I haven't been able to find it anywhere. What did she say happened after the craft, uh, the smaller craft entered the cigar-shaped craft? It just took off. All she said is that it left the area. She didn't say if it ascended vertically or or if it flew horizontally. I don't know, and she doesn't remember. Hmm. When um, Betty called your mother, at that point, what did she tell your mother? Because it's it's our understanding of the case that the details of the case didn't really emerge until a bit of time afterwards when they underwent hypnosis. What were her feelings when she called your mother? What did she tell her? Betty and Barney always had a clear, conscious recollection of a close encounter with a UFO in the White Mountains, and that they observed it for uh, at close range for approximately 45 minutes. She told my mother about how uh, it was it followed them through uh, Franconia Notch, how 
It flew just along the mountain top, sometimes uh, descending in front of the mountain top. How it traveled in a stair step type of pattern, how it was silent, how when they approached a field south about one mile south of Indian Head, the craft had swung around and stopped in the sky, hovering just above and to the right of their car. This caused Barney to stop the car directly in the middle of the road, not on the in his lane, but actually straddling the line in the center of the road. He took the binoculars, looked up at the craft, and at this point it d- descended to approximately 100 feet above the vehicle. Um, Betty and Barney could see uh, the double row of rectangular windows. The craft had stopped spinning at that point, and they could see a red light uh, telescope out of each side of the craft. That's when Barney got out of the vehicle with his binoculars, put his gun in his pocket, and the craft shifted from above the car to the adjacent field, which would have been to the east of the car, and Barney followed it into the field. There it descended closer to him, so he estimated that it was approximately within 100 feet of him. Mm -hmm. And at that point, he lifted the binoculars to his eyes, and he could observe beings on board that craft, eight to 11 of them, looking out the windows at him. So this this was all conscious memory, and they knew this right away. They told the family about this right away. So it the key is some- here is they didn't remember consciously being aboard the craft then? No, they did not remember that portion. Okay. But they remembered the close encounter. That was not anything that they forgot. They knew that all along. Okay, I think we want all that clarified. By the way, we also have, in addition to Kathleen Martin, Stanton Friedman. And they both are authors of a book called Capture the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience. Stan, anytime you want to contribute anything to the discussion or advance with different questions, just drop in, okay? It's it's open season, okay. my friend. Well, you know, uh, I think it's important that the story you just got came from Kathleen. She was in on this from the beginning, That's what makes this uh, book so important, is that we have an insider's testimony. This isn't somebody who was brought in off the street. Hey, can you write a book about that experience? It's time to go over it again. It's been so long. Kathleen's been involved right from the start, and she had access to Betty the last 10 years that nobody else had and has all the tapes and all the correspondence. And uh, I think she's done most of the work in putting all this thing together. And it's an important story because, surprising as it may be to some people, uh, this happened in 61. That's a long time ago. The book came out in 66, The Interrupted Journey. But you find any book these days on UFO abductions and the Hill case gets mentioned often in ways that are totally at odds with the facts. There's Susan Clancy's book, Why People Think They've Been what Abducted by Aliens, Kidnapped. Uh, we talk about that in the book. We review the many pieces of misinformation and misrepresentation. You know, the third-hand kind of research that's so often done by the nasty, noisy negativists A said, B said, C said, D said, well, obviously we're dealing with nonsense. Well, by that time it is nonsense, that's for sure. But 
the case, somebody once asked me, uh, a documentary filmmaker, if there was one case that I could pin down as being the, the most significant case. Now, obviously, it's a very difficult question because, you know, does an apricot taste better than a watermelon? And it's hard to make that comparison. But the Hill case, when it's all sorted out, has got everything you want. There were physical effects. You have two very respectable people. You have a psychiatrist who had no interest in UFOs and no knowledge of them, but was interested in drawing from then their actual experience that they couldn't recall. That's very important. Now, reading the book, of course, is very frustrating for anybody. Why didn't he ask this? Why didn't he ask that? But Dr. Simon's goal was to try to determine what happened during the missing time. And his techniques had been well-tested, working with shell-shock war veterans, post-traumatic stress syndrome, whatever you want. So the story of Betty and Barney, and then you throw in the star map work, which is discussed for the first time in a book in any detail in this book, makes for a very powerful story. And also, and it's something we don't often hear about, because of Kathy's work with the transcripts and with the correspondence and all the rest of it, we learned a lot more about, what do I call it, the sociology of aliens, is that a good term, Kathy? <laughs> I don't know. The little touches about how they acted and reacted and the way they talked, communicated uh, with each other and with Betty and Barney. We, you know, in a radar visual case, you don't get any indication of that at all. In Roswell, you've got no indication of, you know, what goes on with the aliens. But in this case, you do have an insight, a window on activity of otherworldly beings. I don't know how else to put it. So I think that this case can serve as a model of all the elements that make a very important story clearer. Uh, I'm so glad that the tapes have been preserved and Lord knows how much time Kathleen spent talking to Betty, going over things. And somebody's probably wondering, what the heck is Friedman doing in this story? He's a Roswell guy, isn't he? Well, I first met, I met both Betty and Barney way back in 1968. I've been at Betty's home a number of times. Uh, we've done television programs together. I was the first to publish about the star map. So I've had a long-term interest in this case, and in almost all my lectures, well, just about all of them, I talk about the case and the star map. And so I, I've had a strong involvement, and I was the one who was responsible for Terry Dickinson, editor then of Astronomy Magazine, doing his article on the star map. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. Here's an offer for your listener. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, 1995 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at 1-888-UFOMAGA, or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 
800-920-9295. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com. And they can also call 1-888-UFO-MAGA. And they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bianchi. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Kathleen Martin and Stanton Friedman join us. They've written a book together called Captured the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience. And Kathleen is Betty's niece, and she has assembled a wealth of information about this and also has had an interest in the UFO phenomenon. Kathleen, I think I was wondering, as Stan was talking there, about the star map that we first heard about so many years ago. Could you bring our listeners up to date as to what exactly this is and what significance is? When Betty was on the craft, this would have occurred during Barney's examination, where she was left alone in the room with the leader or interpreter, whatever you would refer to that person as. She asked where they were from, and this person went to a wall pushed a button or did something with that wall in what appeared to be a three-dimensional star map appeared. And there were nickel, some nickel-sized stars on the map, some were smaller than that, and uh, there were also curved lines that connected these stars. Some were solid and some were dotted curved lines. Betty uh, asked or where they were from. The leader said to her, well, where do you know where you are on this map? And she explained that she didn't, that she knew very little about astronomy. And um, he said, well, if you don't know where you are, how can I tell you where I'm from? Sort of a, a really a quick trick answer, in my opinion. And uh, and then he made the map disappear, put it back into the wall, and that was the end of it. Now, during hypnosis, Dr. Simon asked her, she had described the star map to him, and he gave her the post-hypnotic suggestion that she could go home, and if she felt that she could accurately draw this map, that she would should feel free to do that and to bring it with her for her next session with him. And um, so she did go home, and she did draw the map, and uh, it has been described as automatic writing because it was a post-hypnotic suggestion, and she would only do it if she could remember it accurately. Okay. Uh, at some time later, this was in, she drew the map, of course, in 1964, 
1969, Marjorie Fish, who at that time was a third grade teacher from Ohio, also a member of Mensa, contacted Betty and visited Betty at her home over the weekend of August 4, 1969. This was uh, after Barney had died, and uh, she was working on uh, models to try attempt to determine where in space the star map was. And Stanton is really the expert on this part. And this is why it was so important to me to have him join me in, in writing this book. I, I can add here that uh, Marjorie told me, I, I was foisted off on Marge, if you will, uh, she had contacted Coral Lorenzen, the uh, head of the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, APRO, and asked if Coral uh, knew of any scientists who might be able to assist her in the work she was doing to check out her work. Marjorie was a very modest person, and incidentally, she started this with the idea that, see, this, uh, this story sounds fishy. There's, Betty and Barney are talking about humanoid-type beings, you know, a uh, two arms, two legs, a head and a body, and Marjorie had uh, studied a lot of biology in college and was rather dubious about that. Anyway, I got a call from Coral Lorenzen uh, asking me if I would be willing to assist, so I made contact with Marjorie, and as it happened, I was doing an awful lot of lecturing at that time. I was able to visit her shortly thereafter at her home in uh, Ohio. I was also with her when she made a presentation to Alan Hynek in Chicago at uh, Adler Planetarium, and I was there in, uh, I guess it was Akron, Ohio, and she gave a paper at a MUFON conference. You know, here we are umpteen years later, and uh, <laughs> we'll be talking about Star Map and a MUFON conference in August. Anyway, I also was working closely with a writer in California uh, named Bobby Ann Slate Gironda. We did several articles about uh, UFOs, and she talked to uh, Marjorie as well. After I had seen the maps, and I used to have a small little model, and I published the first article in Saga magazine with Bobby, and then I was able to convince Terence Dickinson, the editor of Astronomy magazine, whom I'd met. He had been at uh, Strasbourg Planetarium in Rochester, New York earlier, and I'd met him when I was speaking up that way. And I sent him a copy of my Saga magazine article and suggested that this would make a good article for astronomy. So he not only talked to Marjorie, but he also talked to George Mitchell, Dr. George Mitchell, who was a, an astronomer at Ohio State University, whose uh, classes used some of Marjorie Mo Marjorie's models as teaching tools and testified in my film, uh, UFOs Are Real, to the accuracy of her work. Anyway, Terry talked to lots of people, published an article in Astronomy Magazine that got more response than anything they'd ever published before or since. He did a fine job on the article. And uh, over the next year or so, he published about 11 letters from different people, including Carl Sagan and other astronomers. And then he, they put together a 32-page uh, full-color booklet with all the articles in it, and they immediately sold the astronomy magazine did 10,000 copies of that. And then, I mean, they'd never had reaction like this uh, to a story in the, in the magazine. And some of it was very strong reaction, I might add. <laughs> Hey there, listeners. Have you ever thought about hosting your website? You know where you can actually host your blog or your web page? Well, I'll tell you where to go. Host I Can. 
host I can. And as a matter of fact, they provide all our hosting, too, for this site. And guess what? Their price starts at only $7 a month. How could you go wrong? It's reliability, and speed speaks for itself. And that's why we're able to provide you with this radio show that you're listening to right now. It's Host I Can. Give them a try. You'll be glad you did. Hey, all you have to do is go to our website, thepowercast.com, and scroll down a little bit. You'll see a Host I Can banner. That's a Host I Can banner at thepowercast.com. Click on that banner, and you'll learn more about Host I Can, where we host our sites. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the podcast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at the Let me just tell our listeners you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we're talking to Kathleen Martin and Stanton Friedman, co-authors of Captured the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience, with a forward by Dr. Bruce Maccabee, by the way, who was very recently on the Paracast. So it's just like keeping everything within the family here. That's really great. And by the way, I wanted to ask you, and either you, Stan, or Kathleen can answer this, and that is, okay, the star map, precisely, and obviously we can maybe get a link to it over at the Paracast.com website or one of your websites. What did it show? Well, it showed points of light standing for stars, but Marjorie's work zeroed in on, uh, she was, well, the point of all this work, building three-dimensional models. After all, what Betty had drawn was a two-dimensional drawing. And the question is, does that make any sense when you've got no guidelines? You know, where are we in the galaxy? It's a big galaxy, a couple hundred billion stars. They're obviously all not not, not in the star map. The point was, is there a three-dimensional pattern that matches the two-dimensional pattern that Betty drew? And Marjorie tried all kinds of combinations. She gradually zeroed in. She couldn't find any. She thought she'd find a number of patterns. Now, the difficult part here that I need to emphasize is that the hard part is the distances to the stars. Back in the 60s and early 70s, we had lousy data on distances. The astronomers weren't going anywhere. It didn't matter if you knew the angles at which to aim your telescope, you'd see the star. And whether it was 15 light years or 20 light years didn't matter. You were still looking at the star, could measure its spectra, all that sort of thing. But if you're building a model, a 3D model, and one of our big ones is three feet on a side with 250 stars in it, you got to put them in the right location. So she kept trying, and then there was a new catalog of stars. There were about five or six catalogs that she had to go down to Iowa State to look at the data because they wouldn't let her take the volumes out. And that's where Dr. Mitchell was very helpful. She had to hand copy all this stuff. An awful lot of work. It was only after a new catalog, the Wilhelm Gliese catalog, came out with better distance, the best compilation up to that time of distance data, that she was able to find one and only one pattern that matched angle for angle, line length for line length, 
what Betty had drawn to say it was a happy moment for Marjorie is a big understatement. <laughs> and there are several kickers in what she found. First of all, all the stars connected by the lines, about a dozen of them, and there were three off to the side in a little triangle that aren't connected with lines, uh, trade routes or occasional expeditions. And don't ask me what they're trading. I don't, I'm, I don't own stock in their corporation. Anyway, all those, the pattern stars happen to be the right kind for planets and life. Now, only about 5% of the stars in the local neighborhood, say within 55 light years, only about 5% are the right kind. Similar to the sun is the point. Not too hot, not too cold, not too old, not too new, not too close to another star, etc. Not too borrowed, not too blue. I'm sorry. I just couldn't mm, resist. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, there are Dave is now one, one in 20, about one in 20 qualifies. Now, not only are all the pattern stars the right kind for planets and life, but all the right kind of stars for planets and life, then, in that three-dimensional volume of space, were part of the pattern. So you have only the right kind and all the right kind. Now, depending on whose statistics you believe, the chance of that being a coincidence because of that 5% number, one in 10,000 to one in a million. You know, I'll be conservative. It's only one in a thousand. It isn't a coincidence. Now, the bottom line of this thing is the real shocker. The base stars, there were two stars the size of a nickel in the lower right-hand corner of this pattern, of this model, if you will, of, of the three-dimensional whatever it was, probably a hologram. The base stars just happened to be unique in our neighborhood. Zeta-1 reticuli, and don't blame me for the name. Somebody complained to me the other day. It's not my fault. Or Zeta-2 reticuli, those two. It's a constellation of reticulum. You can't see them from where we are. You've got to go down near the equator or below. Now, here's what's special. Those two stars, now we know, are only 39 light years away. We thought they were 37. But new data on distances was obtained by the Hipparcos satellite over the last several years. Best data ever by far, far better than what was available in the 60s and 70s. And the map has still stood up. But those two stars, they're only 39 light years from here. They're only an eighth of a light year apart, which means they're 35 times closer to each other than our star, the sun, is to the next star over. We're out in the boonies. These two stars have next-door neighbors. Each star is visible from a planet around the other star all day long, which would be rather prominent and surprising. Here's the real thing. These two stars are about a billion years older than the sun. A billion years. Now, one of Friedman's many laws, which I enunciate from time to time, is that technological progress comes from doing things differently in an unpredictable way. The future is not an extrapolation of the past. And that's relevant here, because if somebody's got a billion-year head start on us, let it be only a, a million, maybe it's just a thousand years, they're going to know technology that we know from nothing. Heck, even a hundred years. Be, well, yeah, I mean, I was going to say, I, I sat at a college in uh, Detroit a couple of years back. I was going over how things have changed so much. I said, you know, when I started to work in industry, I was using a slide rule. I looked around the class, didn't get any reaction at all. And I, any of you know what a slide rule is? Nobody. <laughs> hmm. 
you know. So my point is that if you've got a neighbor only an eighth of a light year away, you're much more likely, and you can directly observe planets around that star, and you can measure the characteristics of the atmospheres of those planets, and you'll know whether there's some kind of life there. You won't see any people on the surface. But, so there's an enormously greater incentive to develop interstellar travel when you're only an eighth of a light year away from another star like your own. And so, uh, and I would mention, of course, that you've got two stars to study, so you'd learn all about nuclear fusion, which is what produces the energy in the stars. And if you use the right kind of fusion propulsion system, you can kick particles out that have 10 billion times as much energy per particles than a dumb old chemical rocket. The point is that the star map work has stood the test of time. Even Carl Sagan didn't like it. He complained about it. I talked to Terry Dickinson recently. We agreed that the star map work has held up remarkably well. And what's intriguing is that none of the people who attacked it correctly represented what Marjorie did and how she did it. In other words, don't bother me with the facts. My mind's made up. How could a third grade school teacher find out what's going on when astronomers can't? You know, what can I say? The star map work is, is very important and exciting, and uh, I've been very pleased to carry the message hither and yon about it. And it's a unique piece of work, because I don't know of any other case where we have a better handle on, you know, where the guy's coming from. Now, I'm not saying these guys just popped here from Zeta Reticuli. I like to think of the situation as an aircraft carrier and a bunch of little airplanes, the little Earth excursion modules, and then the much larger motherships, as Kathy's mother saw, which go between the stars. They do the heavy lifting, and the little guys run around in the atmosphere in an entirely different environment than between the stars. Quick question about this star map. Is the presumption that it displays a configuration that would be from the point of view of Earth? Was that the determination? No. The sun is off from the corner out on the edge of this thing. As a matter of fact, Dr. David Saunders, who wrote a book about what was wrong with the Condon report, uh, he was into computers, and he was able, uh, he was at this meeting in Chicago that I mentioned with uh, Heineck and Marjorie. He went back and got all the star catalog data and on his computer, and then he figured out where Betty would have to have been to see that with the, you know, the, the positions of where things were. Right. And it's exactly right. where she was. So it's she was looking at it. It was the, the sun was not in the middle of this thing. It was on the edge. You know, occasional expedition. What can I say? <laughs> so, so, so in uh, other words, the map was basically when it's shown to her, it's as if they were looking at the stars, again, from Earth, not from another no. location. No. No, from, from Zeta 1 and Zeta 2 reticular. Okay, so it's basically... More like it. All right. The so, largest stars on the map were Zeta 1 and Zeta 2 reticuli. Okay. The Earth was a tiny planet, or it wouldn't have been the Earth, it would have been the Sun. No, the Sun. was the sun. tiny, okay. and it would have been off in the far right corner. Okay. Yeah. So that basically... Out in the boondocks, in other words. Yeah, this would strengthen the notion that this wasn't contrived because how would you necessarily know, if certainly if you weren't an astronomer, what the positions of these stars would be from a vantage point that would not be that of the Earth? Well, you know, that, that I'm glad you raised that point because nobody doing what Marjorie did before Betty's experience or before the book was published in 66 would have correctly identified the stars because it was only after the new and better distance data and the Gleesey catalog showed up which was years later, that we would were able to determine which stars were which.
Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Stanton Friedman and Kathleen Martin, co-author of Caffer the Betty and Barney Hill, UFO Experience, published by New Page Books. All right, Stan, you were going into the meaning of this a little bit further, so go ahead. The scar map is very important. I think the case is very important. It's a clear indication that Earth is being visited by intelligently controlled extraterrestrial spacecraft. We're here. Uh, how shall I put this? They've, they've got a job to do. Kathleen, would you say that was a fair look at what happened with Betty and Barney? These guys had a job to do and they did it? Yes, I think that's a very fair assessment of what happened. Well, let me ask a question along those lines, though, because Zeta Reticuli, the the Zeta Reticuli star system, binary star system, is always or very often cited as a source star for a lot of different claimed UFO beings. This brings up an interesting question, though, in that the description of the beings that Betty and Barney made uh, seems somewhat different from the normal description that we get, or I should say the, the typical description we get of the gray beings. Have we had other UFO cases where similar beings to those that were um, uh, reported by Betty and Barney have surfaced? I would say we have. And remember, I know there's the Zetas and there's whole groups of people who make a big thing about it. None of that commentary about these guys come from Zeta Reticulum occurred before the work was published many years after the Betty and Barney Hill case. In other words, until the, the Saga Magazine article in 72, I think it was, and the subsequent work in Astronomy Magazine after that, before that, if these people were really in touch with people from Zeta Reticuli, how come they never mentioned that before these names showed up in the scientific work? You see what I'm getting at. Mm-hmm. I think it's a question of them jumping on the bandwagon. You know, there's nothing wrong with that, I suppose, but let's not act as if these people were, I'll call them uh, cultists, groupies, whatever you want to call it, the Zetans, and, you know, there's a number of groups like that. It's not as if they were announcing that before the star map work was done. Nowhere's near. Well, it seems to me that the, the major difference, too, between what Betty and Barney described and what others have described is that the ones that Betty and Barney described uh, were muscular. They had mm-hmm. uh, large barrel chests, mm-hmm. and there were two, at least on board the craft, who were four and a half to five feet tall. There were also others on that craft who were three and a half to four feet tall. Remember now, we have a longer, a bigger picture of what went on. This experience, what Dr. Simon brought out, they saw the beings from outside the craft as well as in close contact with them on board the craft. So we've got a lot of time of observation of seeing a bunch of beings. In most abduction cases, the individual 
hasn't brought back, so to speak, as good a, a tour visit <laughs> that Ian Barney had. Okay, that raises another issue, of course, which is that are you saying, either of you, that this is the most authentic of the so-called abduction cases or close encounter cases of any nature? How do you say most authentic? Uh, you know, I would say so only because it's got more information content. There's an enormous amount of data that came out of those sessions, details. And again, I would give Dr. Simon credit. Uh, like I say, it's very frustrating to read. I read his comments on John Fuller's manuscript, the Boston University Archives. And I don't know how Fuller put up with Simon's comments. <laughs> he was nitpicking all over the place. And obviously, and, and this is one of the crucial points of, of the book, is that the debunkers try to say that hypnotists try to push the so-called abductees uh, to see things the way the hypnotist sees them, you know, the false memory syndrome and all this kind of stuff. What is very clear in this case is that Simon was desperately trying to push them into an entirely different explanation. It wasn't aliens. Betty had a dream, and somehow Barney absorbed it. Is that a fair statement, Kathy? Uh, yes, it is. You would agree that he was pushing them in a certain direction? Absolutely. He, he was attempting to push them in a certain direction, but Betty and Barney consistently refuted Dr. Simon's opinion and backed up their refutation with facts. Okay, so he was trying to push them into a direction away from possible encounter with extraterrestrials. Yeah. Okay. He was trying yeah. to convince them that Betty's dreams were the same as what Betty said under hypnosis and that uh, under hypnosis, Barney had only repeated Betty's dreams. And that simply was not true. And, uh, you know, as, as you read our book, you will see how very different what Betty and Barney said under hypnosis was from what Betty dreamed, including the descriptions of the aliens and uh, a lot of descriptions throughout. And you know, I, I think that this is very important. What you learned in the interrupted journey was only one scenario. Dr. Simon didn't ask Betty and Barney the same question and by the way, this was done separately with amnesia imposed on each of them. He didn't ask that question only once. In John Fuller's book, you got the answer to that question only one time. And it was the most emotional, high-impact answer that they gave. Over and over again, as Dr. Simon asked those questions to clarify certain points, more and more details came out and consistent stories came out. And no one has ever heard any of those consistent stories that Betty and Barney told. And they're in this book. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the podcast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and Data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com.
during the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, and we're talking with Kathleen Martin and Stanton Friedman, co-authors of Capture the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience from New Page Books. Stan, you were going to make a comment. Well, I'm just going to say that if people are anxious to get the book, it's listed at my website, www.stantonfriedman.com, and as a special deal, Kathleen and I have signed book plates so that anybody who gets the book from us will have both our signatures in it, because we know a lot of people like to get autographed books. What can I say? Uh, I know that from the response to my book. So, well, actually, in my uh, case, when they get my name on a book, they return it for a refund, full <laughs> refund. Uh, I'd like to ask well, again about the description of the beings, because this is something that I think is very telling and unusual about this case. Kathleen, you were saying that they had described these beings as being muscular which is something that we never hear about in reports of encounters with the kinds of beings that supposedly claim or or appear to come from one of the two Zeta Reticulous star systems. What I asked before, uh, Stan, was do you know of other cases where similar beings in similar attire, I think there was, I had read a note that these beings were wearing some kind of caps, also something that we don't see reported very often in any sort of close encounters, to my knowledge. And I'm just wondering if you have found other cases that have similar descriptions of beings and or similar descriptions of craft with these double row of rectangular windows. Not offhand. Hmm. Not offhand. But let me tell you, when Barney was looking through the binoculars, he was seeing them at a distance. And that is when he felt that there were caps on their heads. of the descriptions that he gave of these beings on board the craft did not have caps on their heads. So that's that's a big... Okay, no, that's good for clarification. Now, once they were on the craft, what was the nature of the examinations? What sort of questions were they asked? And did Betty ask any other questions besides, where are you from? The, The nature of the exam for Betty and Barney were quite similar. They were uh, interested in the, the structure of their hands, of their feet. They were very interested in their skeletal systems. They pushed along their, their vertebrae. They were interested in their nervous systems or seemed to be. They took skin scrapings from both. They took samples from just about every orifice in Barney's body. Betty did not mention every orifice in her bo- in her body, and you know we'll never know for sure whether she was withholding information or not. Of course, she also told about uh, being put on the table and having uh, the neurological type examination, and then having a needle thrust into her navel, which they said was some sort of a pregnancy test. Mm-hmm. So, and which upset her very much, incidentally, because it hurt. <laughs> In fact, right. it, it upset her so much that Dr. Simon had to bring that session to a close prematurely. She was so distressed. She got aggravated. In, incidentally, I should add that I, we've seen it in writing where Simon told uh, Dr. James E. McDonald that the emotional intensity in some of the sessions was greater that than that in any of the sessions he'd had with uh, shell shock war veterans. He didn't use that term, but a term mm-hmm. like that. 
that, that's quite remarkable when you think about it. He treated an awful lot of patients uh, after the Second World War. Well, now, this is also interesting in that so many of these cases we hear that there is usually predominantly on the part of the visitors, there is a predominant interest in reproductive organs. That doesn't sound like that's the case with this case, does it? Well, it seems no, that that was part of the picture, but not a predominant interest. That's correct. Mm-hmm. It's not a predominant interest. They had gathered specimens, and we're looking at them. They were looking at the whole body. There wasn't anything like semen extraction from from Barney, was there? Why did you say that? I'm curious. It is difficult to tell whether there was semen extraction or not. A cup was placed over Barney's genitals. It contained some type of uh, a thick substance. He felt a tug. Now, whether that was uh, semen extraction or not, Barney mm-hmm. didn't know for sure. He said right. it could possibly have been, but, but he didn't know. In regression hypnosis of these events, was there a corresponding increase in um, aggravation on their part as they described these incidents? I mean, uh, I would imagine that being in such an unusual situation like this, that they would have both been uh, certainly very upset. Did that come through in the hypnosis sessions? Well, that's, that's what I was just saying, that the level was. of emotional distress was incredible, and not during the whole time when they talked about the casual stuff, the drive uh, to Montreal and so forth, it was on an even keel. But then when they tried, and it took uh, Simon a great deal of effort to break through Barney's resistance to going back to the missing time, then the emotional content was, was pretty tremendous. Kathy, you've listened to the tapes. You don't hear much like that, do you? Until they actually took Barney under control. And then he was, he was under some kind of mind control. It was almost as if he were heavily tranquilized. Right. And, you know, incapable of action and just feeling at that point that he would like to strike out if anything happened to him, that where they harmed him, he would strike out. Otherwise, he would be calm and cooperative and, uh, you know, try to get through this thing. That was, right. that was the way he was describing it. Right. That's. I guess the nature of what I'm asking is, what is the, the arc of their emotional response? And, and that's kind of what I was getting at, Stan. I, I understand that when they you know, put this needle into Betty, that she got very agitated. What I'm curious about is, to what degree was their mind control going on? You know, if you great. control, well, well sure, but, but apparently not great enough to control her pain. Well, they stopped her pain. That was one of the things that made Betty grateful to the leader, wouldn't you say, Kathleen? Uh-huh. I would say so. They didn't anticipate that it would hurt her. They, In fact, they yeah. told her that it wouldn't hurt her. And mm-hmm. when it did, she said that they seemed very surprised that she was having this reaction, and then they stopped her pain. Of course, it the pain did continue for a few moments after they withdrew the needle. They withdrew it very quickly, but they... they uh-huh able to control the pain at that point. An important part of this story is the mind control as far as I'm concerned. Kathleen and I were in Lincoln, New Hampshire at the very location where this abduction took place and quite frankly it was perfectly obvious when you looked at the situation that Barney's behavior turning off the road and all that sort of thing he was clearly under their control there was no getting around it they picked out a place which was rare there there was this huge 
uh, flat area, sand covered, surrounded by trees, big enough for them to land in. And he's suddenly turning off on a little side road and parks along the road and they grab him. And clearly, the guys in the craft were controlling Barney's driving. And think about it from any government's viewpoint. Wouldn't you like to be able to control people's behavior? And uh, it's a scary aspect of the whole thing. And I'm sure one of the reasons the government's interested in this. You remember the uh, mind control after the Korean War? Sure. The prisoners uh, brainwashing, all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so th there's no question that they were being controlled. Uh, the kind of dumb, <laughs> I hate to say it this way, but it was kind of like being kind to dumb animals. You know, you're not nasty to them, but the fact that they could get them to do what they wanted without sticking a knife in their back or a gun at their head, uh, standard earthling techniques, you might say, is quite remarkable. They seem to begin to take control of Barney in the field. When they left Route 3 and uh, or the, the area of Route 3 where they were parked when he looked at the UFO in the field, Barney took off very rapidly down the road. And at that point, the craft shifted over the car and they heard a series of beeping or buzzing. Betty described them as electrical beeping sounds. Barney described them as buzzing sounds or maybe electronic buzzing sounds. But it seems that those sounds that emitted from the trunk of the car were what caused Betty to come under this kind of mind control, too. But hers was never as complete as Barney's because she remembered snippets of sights that she saw along the road. And then she and I took these drives over and over again along Route 3 to this abduction site. She would point out to me what she remembered, that, you know, she saw this sign beside the road. Then suddenly, Barney made a left-hand turn off from Route 3 across a railroad type of bridge. And Betty and, and Barney didn't speak about why this was happening. They were silent. Skeptics will tell you that Barney was frightened, that he had seen a craft, and that he was attempting to escape the craft that was overhead. This is not true. This happened about 10 miles south of the field. It happened after they had lost the craft from sight. And Barney made this turn without ever remembering exactly why he made the turn. It was as if he were being controlled. He was being told that he had to make this turn, or perhaps the craft even caused the car to turn. But he was always very confused about this. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.net. It's all out of this world. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com 
where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Stanton Friedman this evening and Kathleen Martin, co-authors of Capture, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience. And we were talking, Kathleen, here about the fact that Barney was evidently or possibly or felt that he was being directed, told to make this turn in his yes, car. He by did not sure. make a conscious decision to turn off from Route 3. Somebody okay. up above was looking down and arranging things, wouldn't you say, <laughs> external, whether the craft actually had physical contact with the car, was control the car, or was controlling Barney's mind. It's not really clear to me. But something caused that car to turn, and Barney seemed surprised by this under hypnosis with Dr. Simon. Um, They crossed the bridge. They turned right onto State Road 175 which ran parallel to Route 3, and two miles away from where they turned off on this bridge, they made another left-hand turn onto a very small gravel logging road. It's a dead-end road today still. Which they would never have gone to. No, absolutely not. I want to um, reconcile this idea that they were being mind-controlled, which then obviously involves some form of telepathic interaction. When they were on the craft and speaking with these beings, was the communication telepathic in nature, or did these beings literally speak to them with uh, vocal cords? Well, there was some confusion on Betty's part because she felt that the leader had actually spoken to her in English. However, mm-hmm. when Barney looked, he felt that they had actually communicated with him telepathically, and Betty actually told Dr. Simon under hypnosis that she felt that it was a telepathic type of communication, that she understood them in English, although they did hear another language being communicated between the uh, the crew members, and they had never heard any sounds like these before in their mm. lives. So part of the mystery. We don't have all the story there. Right. And that's why I was wondering about that, because um, in some of what I've read about this case, there seems to be this idea that they were literally being spoken to uh, with audible voices, which is another thing that would be fairly unique to this case if that indeed were the case. Later in life, Betty insisted that they were spoken to in audible voices, but if you go to the hypnosis tapes to what they what Betty actually said, it was telepathic. We should stress something here that there is a difference between medical hypnosis as used by Dr. Simon and just casual parlor hypnosis, if you will, stage hypnosis or anything like that. The whole point is reliving of an experience. Reliving, not retelling. You know, I did this and then they did that or something like that. It's reliving with all the feelings. That's how Dr. Simon was able to help the uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome guys during the war. I want to make that point because what you're getting is, in effect, a time displacement. The person is reliving 
best there is their mind has recorded it, what happened, and not Dr. with all the externals. And he, he instructed them to recall all of their thoughts and all of their feelings, not mm -hmm. just what they observed, but also what they were thinking. And, and I that's think that rarely that, done. Mm-hmm. So this is very different from what, for example, we're hearing with regard to other so-called UFO abductions. And that may even raise another question here, which is where does Betty and Barney Hill fit here? Now, if we take this at face value, and certainly David and I read the books, certainly Interrupted Journey by John G. Fuller, and I met Betty Hill several times, and you and I, Stan, have talked about it a couple of times. Certainly, if we accept this as at least the, the authentic case, and... I'll tell you this, we're to break in a few moments for our hourly break and then continue, but maybe a quick answer here that could certainly illuminate further discussions. Do you think, Stan, do you think, Kathleen, there are other genuine abduction cases to deal with? Well, I certainly think so, sure. So, too, yes. And we have to remember that Betty and Barney's case was one of the first, if not the first. There there were, probably were others before that, but I, I think that the people who abducted Betty and Barney uh, were inexperienced, and they made a lot of mistakes along the way. And they, I think that over time they perfected what they were doing so that later they could abduct people and, and people might not even remember the abduction that it might have been done from a, a bedroom at night while the person was sleeping rather than while the person was driving down the road. And so, you know, and I think that individual perceptions, individual descriptions might have been different based upon the, you know, the person, the individual perception of what they were describing and probably the, the mental state that they were in at the time. Hey, we're going to take a break now. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney will be back at the other side of the hour with Stanton Friedman and Kathleen Martin, co-authors of Capture the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. In um, the written descriptions of, of this encounter, what is not immediately obvious is the follow-up to this. And I'm wondering, what was the extent and range of physical artifacts from this? I know that there, there were some health issues that occurred for both of the hills after this. I wonder if the two of you can address some of those issues. And what I'm wondering about, um, I know that I've read that there were certain physical characteristics that in, in Barney's case appeared. Uh, there were some strange uh, warts that appeared around his groin in a, in a well, supposedly a near-perfect circle. Is there photographic evidence of these physical artifacts? Well, there is. There's real evidence of the dress that Betty wore, and which tests have been done. Kathleen, I don't think we have any pictures of the warts, do we? No, we don't. And in fact, the medical report on the warts—if in fact they were warts—they um, they yeah. were wart-like growths. Dr. Simon asked Barney about these on the hypnosis tapes, and it's not even clear that they were warts. There were about 22. They were cone-shaped or cylindrical-shaped, and they were about three-quarters of an inch long. I can give mm. you that description. Mm -hmm. um, and, well, it took uh, a while for them to grow, too, right? 
Jessica? Yes, it did. Um, immediately upon returning home on the morning of September 20th, 1961, Barney felt a strange uh, itching sensation, He and he wanted to examine his groin. And he went into the bathroom and he did that. But it wasn't until probably January when he actually observed those growths. And uh, they were more of an annoyance than anything else. It was in 1964, during the hypnosis sessions, when they actually became inflamed and he had them removed. I'm wondering, you, you mentioned before that they put some sort of a cup with something over his groin area. Yes. Would it have been that this circle of these growths would have conformed to the edge of that cup that was placed on him? Exactly. Yes, exactly. Hmm. Um, yeah, we don't know what this means. Was this a right. minor infection? Was it an inflammation? Uh, who knows? Now, when they removed these things, did they attempt to do any sort of a biopsy on them? No. Yes, they, yes, they well, did. did they? Who removed them told Barney that they were not warts, hmm. but I have the technical name for what they were. Huh. That's not in any of the records that I could find. Does anyone feel here that the illness that eventually claimed the life of Barney Hill may have been in part caused by something that went on during this encounter? I've never... Didn't his father suffer from the same problem? There, you know, there has been speculation about that. Maybe the stress from all of this contributed to it, um, the high blood pressure. But we do know that he had a genetic weakness that other members of his family, including his father, uh, had a stroke. And, and Barney's, of course, was a cerebral hemorrhage, a massive cerebral hemorrhage. You know, so often when we read about this kind of experience, the abduction encounters, we hear suggestions that it really got to start early in their lifetime, and maybe the memories of the adult encounters are somehow triggering the earlier memories, too. So let me ask that question. Your mom had a UFO experience in the 1950s. Any evidence that Barney and Betty Hill together separately had prior UFO experiences? No, there was no evidence of that. But I would like to get back to the other physical evidence, sure. if you don't mind. Absolutely. Please. When Barney arrived home, he noticed that the tops of his best dress shoes were, were deeply gouged, and he had no explanation for how this happened. It was more than just normal scuffing. And after that, he wore those shoes to, to mow the lawn uh, because he could no longer wear them as dress shoes. When Betty arrived home, her dress was torn. The lining was torn from the hem all the way to the waist. Part of the hem was torn down, and there was a tear in the dress fabric and also in the zipper fabric at the top of her dress. Um, she folded the dress up, put it into her closet, and at some point later, uh, remembered it, took it out, and there was a pink powdery substance on the dress. Uh, she put it on her clothesline to, to blow it away. The, she noticed that the dress was ruined. It was discolored. She put it into the trash can and decided on second thought that she'd pull it back out and save the dress. Now, that dress has undergone chemical and forensic analysis at five different laboratories, and the results of all of this is also in the book. Well, can you give us an idea of what the results were? 
every laboratory found something anomalous about what was on the dress. I can tell you that. You, you won't give us more details than that. I had to have a, a chemist help me to interpret all of this information. So I really, I don't feel that I can at this point. In other words, if they read it, anybody reads this in the book, they can go to somebody who's uh, more knowledgeable than either Kathy or, or I am to try to make some sense out of it. Sometimes you get test results and they're unexpected, but you don't know what they mean. Was it exposed to certain kinds of material? Is there some uh, crossover from the handling that, after all, the, uh, the guy who did the examination handled the dress? And he had trouble with the zipper, which is one of those little <laughs> side questions. Uh, as Bruce Maccabee notes in the forward, you know, maybe they didn't, they didn't go through the zipper stage. You know? <laughs> if you were suddenly for the first time confronted with a zipper. But, well, the aliens so just didn't have zippers in their society, that's all. Uh, uh, who knows? Uh, maybe not. You know, so there are surprises like that. I, I should go back to one thing about Barney's shoes. You might say, so what's the big deal? Well, Barney was pretty fastidious about his clothing. His shoes were always shined and in good shape. So it was totally out of character for him to have done something or acted in such a way that his shoes would have been so badly damaged during this, you know, he's driving home from Canada to Portsmouth. Uh, there's no reason there to have uh, shoe problems. Or Sounds shoe. like a pretty, normally would be a routine trip. Yeah, yeah. It, it should have been. Mm. What is it, 192 miles, Kathy? That may not be right. Well, from from uh, Colebrook to Portsmouth, it was about 170 miles, I believe. And the hills were familiar with this route. They had to the White Mountains many times together, so there was nothing unusual about their driving. Perfectly ordinary trip. I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car. A sleep timer. An alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting our site, theparacast.com. That's theparacast.com right now. Click on the C-Crane Sponsor button to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free C-Crane catalog. Place your order today. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. 
tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bianchi. You never know what's going to happen next. You're on the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Stanton Friedman and Kathleen Martin. Together, they've written Captured the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience from New Page Books. And we'll have a link to Stan's site so you can order a copy. Get the autographed version from these two people, which in their case is going to be worth more money. You see, like I said, if I autograph the book, it goes down in value to half what's worth. David, of course, if he autographs a book, it just shoots up in the air, you know, to the sky. Guy, and then some. But, you know, in my case, you know, things just don't happen. Let me ask you a question, which is maybe a side issue. And I know David has a thousand more that he's going to pursue with us as we go on. That is, what, Kathleen, do you want people to take away from the personality and the lives of Betty and Barney Hill? Well, I want Betty and, and Barney, or I want people to to see Betty and Barney the way they were. When I first started to write this book, I intended it to be Betty's biography. So I went back to 1937, and I think I give the reader a a really good idea of what Betty was like, what Barney was like, how they met, um, about their families. I had all of Betty's diaries, her memoirs, letters that she had written to various people. And I also knew all of her friends, or most of her friends. And so the book contains a lot of information about what kind of really, you know, average, normal, wholesome people Betty and Barney were. You know, they were also very committed to to social and political causes, to the civil rights movement, so perhaps that sets them aside a little bit from the average person because they were so involved in the community, in their church, and were social activists. But, uh, you know, they were really down-to-earth, very nice people. You know, I met Betty Hill twice. And this was going back, what, 20, how many years ago? And my impression going away from those two encounters, and I did record interviews at the time, this was the grandmother that everybody would want. A sweet, easygoing woman, just the perfect grandmother. I could imagine her, you know, coming there on Saturday night for a dinner, and there she'd be cooking and just be sitting there and laughing and having a pleasant time with everyone. That's what I felt around her. That's exactly the way she was. And she did enjoy cooking, and she did enjoy baking. And uh, she was the oldest child in her family, so she felt that she was in charge of of seeing that the family family stayed together, and and she was the social organizer, having a lot of family functions that that all of her friends and family attended. She just radiated that strongly. I understand exactly what you're saying, sure. I I should add that uh, I had met both Betty and Barney, and I was neutral about this whole case. It was in my gray basket. Some people don't like that phrase, (laughs) because I'd read the book, and I'd read Look Magazine articles, and there really wasn't enough data to my mind, to reach a decision. 
there was no history of abductions around in Goli. But then I had the lucky opportunity in Pittsburgh. I was working for Westinghouse Astronuclear Lab, and Westinghouse Broadcasting, where I had done a number of radio shows about UFOs, and they called me to say that Betty and Barney were in town and were going to be doing one of their programs. They thought I might be interested, and they did something that they wouldn't normally do. They told me at what hotel they were staying. They trusted me. I mean, I'd been down to the station many times. Anyway, I called and arranged to have dinner with them, and I was very favorably impressed. They were obviously sensible, intelligent people. Barney uh, had a great sense of humor. You know, it was clear that they were not enlarging things. They weren't looking self-aggrandizing. I was very favorably impressed by them as people. And, you know, we haven't even mentioned it, which tells you something, I guess, with Barney being black and Betty white. We're talking in the 60s now, you know. Uh, times were a little different. And so I was very favorably impressed by them. And that's why it was easy for me when I was asked to get involved in the star map work to do that. And uh, anybody who sees my movie, UFOs Are Real, there are interviews with Betty and with Marjorie Fish and with this Dr. Mitchell that I mentioned uh, as a backup to all this stuff. These are real people. And uh, let me go back to one other thing, where they were driving. Some people have tried to claim, well, they, they panicked and Barney got lost and they wandered around the back hills of New Hampshire and that's why they got home two hours late and it had nothing to do with an abduction. Well... You know that that's pretty darn nonsensical. If you it's, look at the road, they lived alone. Sure. It, it doesn't. Why would that make a difference to anyone? Also, the, where was the logic in that? As Mister Spock used to say on Star Trek, what's the logic in making up this entire thing just to explain being two hours late if nobody else was being impacted by that? Well, that's right. And also, uh, an important point is, and almost always, the noisy negativists, as I call them. Make it seem, this happens with Roswell, it happens with this case. They, they ran around, the, the witnesses just came forward with their crazy stories. Betty and Barney were clearly not seeking publicity. They both thought they'd lose their jobs when the story came out because of a reporter publishing it without their permission. He got a tape from somebody else. But the, the notion that they were seeking publicity, it's just absurd. They, anything but they were very active in community and, uh, you know, race relations, all this kind of civil rights. And the last thing they needed w was the publicity about something like this. I mean, it turns out, uh, in retrospect, people were very uh, nice about it from all over the world. But they had no way of knowing that in advance. So I guarantee you that. A related question along the lines of their personalities. Before this incident, what were their interests in, A, paranormal topics, B, <laughs> UFOs? None. None. Is that a fair far, statement? Um, I do yeah. know that 1957... My mother told Betty and Barney and my grandparents about the sighting that she saw. Mm -hmm. At that time, Betty thought, well, maybe it's possible. Barney said, absolutely not. I don't believe in flying saucers. It's impossible. There was no other paranormal interest in my family. 
Okay. okay that, it wasn't a topic and, that anyone talked about. And they didn't watch the what was the television show that they were accused of oh, watching? Oh, the Bolero Shield, The Outer Limits. No, they did not watch Outer that. Outer Limits. Yeah, just going to say that they were accused of. Barney saw that show, and that's where his picture of the aliens came from in his head. And they were both followers of science fiction and ufology and all this stuff. And it was all baloney. That simply isn't true. If you're looking for a better way to present or collaborate during your conference calls, your solution is simple. Web conferencing with GoToMeeting. During your call, everyone logs on to GoToMeeting.com, and your computer screen shows up on their computer screens. It's like you're all in the same room. GoToMeeting is perfect for sales or product demos, training, or real-time collaboration. Plus, you're not charged per minute like other providers. You can meet as often as you want for as long as you need. With GoToMeeting, you can meet with anyone, anywhere, without leaving your office. You'll not only save time, but money, too. See for yourself. Try GoToMeeting free for 45 days. Just visit GoToMeeting.com forward slash podcast. That's GoToMeeting.com forward slash podcast. Try GoToMeeting today. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and Data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at Theparacast.com. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. Stan Friedman, one of our friends, old friends on the show, joins us with Kathleen Martin. They've written Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience from New Page Books. And David, you're champing at the bit. I can just sense it through the wires in the network. I'm champing at the bit? Yeah, something like that. I don't know. What was the reaction... When this became public, it wasn't very long after that happened that the news started getting out. What was the reaction? Oh, it was. Now, wait a minute. It was quite a while. Remember, the abduction took place on September 19th, 1961. The hypnosis began well, a little over, what, two years later. Right, Kathy? Let's see. Yes, yeah. it began in January 1964. Yeah, so a little over two years later. The uh, hypnosis sessions were finished. They were finished with Dr. Simon by what, late in the summer? By June, uh, in uh, the June, end of okay. June 1964. Okay. Now, the newspaper article came out when? It didn't come out until October 25th, 1965. Okay. Yeah. So we go from 61 and then all this intervening time and then 65 when the story comes out. Mm-hmm. So it was not a rapid response, if you will. They thought they were in the clear. They had told a few friends after all these sessions. They worked with scientists. That's one of the things a lot of people don't know that's in the book, and Kathy has the correspondence to prove it, that there were a number of scientists who quietly wanted to investigate this case and who got involved at the time, uh, and they cooperated fully with trying to find out more. A couple of guys connected with IBM were involved, uh, and then Alan Heineck, Jim McDonald, uh, and others. But there was a long delay in there. I mean, if anybody was looking for publicity, it's sure a slow way to go about it. 
So once the incident became public and once they started receiving media attention, Kathleen, what was the response of the family to this? And you also mentioned they were active in uh, their church. They were active in race relations. What were what was the response of their peers and their friends? Their friends were supportive of their going public with it at this point. In terms of family, we were very concerned for for Betty and Barney. We knew that they were extremely upset that this appeared in the Boston Traveler, the series of five articles, and uh, they they were very upset about this, uh, fearful that they would lose their jobs, they would lose their standing in the community. Barney was on the governor's civil rights commission. They were worried about how it would affect his public image and and, uh, his desire to go further in the civil rights movement. So this was very difficult for them, and we were concerned. But we understood that whatever was best for them would be all right with us. And they finally, you know, decided that they would go along with John Fuller's proposal to write the truth about what happened to them because the articles in the Boston Traveler were not accurate. We should mention that John Fuller had already written Incident at Exeter, so he had more than a passing interest in UFOs and had already demonstrated that he could handle the matter in a sensitive, sensible, non-sensationalist kind of fashion. And that was important to them. Uh, in other words, they, they had a basis on which to base their view. And also, Dr. Simon retained final say on uh, everything, pretty much, that affected certainly uh, how he might appear to his professional colleagues. He was the one who was really worried. How did Dr. Simon at least end up in terms of his impression about the whole affair? What did he think? Uh, I guess take it to the end of his days. What did, did he think about all this? Dr. Simon viewed it as two separate incidents. He felt first incident, the the UFO sighting uh, had actually occurred. He wasn't willing to say that it was an extraterrestrial craft, but he did feel that something had actually happened there. Um, in terms of the second incident, he was an absolute skeptic and was not willing to even consider the idea that it was extraterrestrial craft. He said that he was going to lead, uh, lean on the side of conservatism on that issue and that he would wait for science to, to resolve that part of it maybe at some later date. He preferred to give the explanation that Betty had had a series of dreams, that she came to believe that these dreams reflected reality. And over time, although Barney felt that her dreams were nonsense, he repeated this over and over again, that there was they were nothing more than dreams, he felt that over time somehow Barney had absorbed Betty's dreams. And he didn't notice the difference between Betty's dreams and what Betty said about her abduction and what Barney said about his abduction and what Betty and Barney said were different from Betty's dreams but correlated point for point. This is the first time uh, in a book that the differences are so clearly pointed out by Kathleen. You know, let's look at what did they say under hypnosis? What did they relive, if you will? And let's look at Betty's dreams. And do they match? And the point of fact is that they don't match. 
that, that's very important. But Dr. Simon, remember, as I said at the beginning, what's important to me is that he was very good at getting people who could handle very deep hypnosis, and both Betty and Barney could, to relive their experiences as they happened rather than retelling. He didn't want to accept what they said, you know, and certainly Betty, I should stress here, Betty never said, I was talking to these Zeta reticulans. That's not what we're dealing with here. That's an inference from information that was provided under the instruction to do so only if you could do it accurately. You know, I'm going to ask a kind of a left field question here, and feel free, guys, to just kind of jump in and tell me what you think. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with James Steinberg and David Bianchi. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietany. We are proud to have Kathleen Martin and Stanton Friedman working together on this book, Captured the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience, the true story of the world's first documented alien abduction. Okay, now we talked before about mind experiments and testing engaged in by the government. Has anyone considered here that maybe instead, let's just use the devil's advocate question here, instead of being an alien counter here, that actually Barney and Betty Hill were up against some kind of government experiment to see how they'd react to something of this sort? Well, I don't see any evidence for that. Remember that at that time, nobody talked about alien abductions. It would be a very strange way. I I, I should preface this. I'm not saying the government hasn't conducted mind control experiments on people. They certainly have. We know that. And remember the story sort of began in Montreal. Well, we know Montreal is a place where such experiments were conducted. However, the characteristics of the experience overall, the circumstances under which this abduction occurred, the details along the trip and stuff, there doesn't seem to be any room in there for the government to have induced a mind control, if you will, to have injected a certain substance to cause this to happen. Now, you maybe you're saying that maybe the government has figured out telepathy all over the place and they can make this happen to anybody. Well, I'll believe that when I get more evidence, and I certainly haven't 
seen any. Now, one of the things that is in the book, Kathleen has the uh, Blue Book files. We certainly found evidence on the one hand of serious interest on the part of the people at the military Peace Air Force Base. Those guys certainly treated them fairly. Isn't that a decent statement, Kathleen? Yes, it is. You know, the, the guys from the base weren't giving them a hard time. But if you look at the Blue Book file, there's certainly a number of things in there that say the Air Force was playing fast and loose with the truth to avoid having to deal with this case. The way they came up with different explanations for what was seen, they said, well, we can't decide this because that data isn't available when the data was available. It was a typical Blue Book foul-up, if you will, <laughs> cover-up is even better. But I can't find any reason at all to think that this was a government-induced memory or circumstance or experience. Can you, Kathy? No, I can't. Uh, we have to remember the, the conscious, continuous part, their experience, too, where they encountered a huge, hovering, silent craft that could outfly and outmaneuver anything that we had on Earth at that point. And, uh, you know, if we're talking about mind control after that, I don't think that we had the technology at that point where they could have been able to control Betty's and Barney's actions from a distance. You know, so, you know, I've given this some thought and I really don't think that that was what happened to them. I um, read online that there was some sort of corroboration from the Air Force that this UFO had been confirmed by radar, that apparently Betty had um, called Pease Air Force Base and that there was supposedly a Major Henderson who told her uh, the UFO was confirmed by our radar. Has there been any follow-up on that? Do we know if that actually happened? We do know that there was something on radar. In the initial report, uh, it was both uh, ground visual and air intercept radar that, that was checked off in mm -hmm. the boxes. That was later changed to, I believe, just ground visual. In terms of what it was, they claimed later in the reports that I have that uh, they never actually saw a craft and and then of course they said that it was a temperature inversion and it would probably just cause a blip on the radar screen it, it was a typical blue book attempt to get away from dealing with the facts of the case if we can and if there's any way we can explain let's, let's use it doesn't matter whether it fits or not Look, I've been working with Frank Faschino on the book, Shoot Them Down, about the Flatwoods Monster case. And if you look at the Blue Book files there, there's this same kind of dissimulation, this explaining in uh, any way you can explain it, even though it doesn't match the facts. Uh, there's been a consistent picture of that. And certainly that's the case here, too, that we don't know how much more data they had. We do know that the original guys to whom they talked at Pease were seriously interested. I should mention here that Betty and Barney had lots of people they knew who worked at the base, hmm. you know, right there in Portsmouth. So it's not as if they were unfamiliar with the military or the people at the base. Nobody knew them. If anybody had asked for character references of some major somewhere, hey, what about these people? They would have gotten but good Betty reports. was in the Air Force and stationed at Pease Air Force Base. Betty's son was in the military. Barney's son was in the military. And Betty and Barney's friends were comprised 
primarily of people in their profession and people from Pease Air Force Base. Most of the members of the couples club at their church were from Pease Air Force Base. Well, that's really interesting, but I can hear voices out there thinking, well, that would strengthen an argument for some sort of military experimentation here if they were that intimately familiar with all well, of these people. I mean, know, I, I'm just saying, if... Made, you bring that up. They made this trip on the spur of the moment. Mm-hmm. Even family members didn't know that they were gone. Barney thought that he would surprise Betty. And on Saturday morning, when he returned home from work the night before he worked nights, he knew that she had a week's vacation. And he said, let's go to Niagara Falls and then we'll drive up to Montreal. And so they left Sunday morning without really letting anyone know that they were going to be gone. And uh, they actually ended up returning home earlier than they had anticipated that they would. Um, This was a a decision that they sort of made on the spur of the moment on September Mm -hmm. 19th, that they would not spend the night in Montreal, that they'd just drive home because there was a hurricane coming up the coast. So um, no one would even have known where they were at that particular point in time. What about surveillance? (laughs) Just to be a devil's advocate, folks. Hey, did we have drones back then that could do that? You're you're 20 years before the time. (laughs) Uh, People can do surveillance. That's certainly an age-old skill. I'm just being, as they say, appropriately skeptical here. Well, okay, but how would that person then, he calls in the phony flying saucer and the alien beings, hey guys, act three, down there. I don't see how you can put the two together. Hypnosis is the only area where there might be a consistency, obviously. I wouldn't think that they actually staged a flying saucer event with movie special effects. Well, okay, who was doing the hypnosis so well? And how could Simon say that the emotional intensity was greater in some instances than any of the people that he dealt with? And some of that was pretty powerful stuff. Uh, Well, I'm not going to say he was paid by the military to come up with that answer, but certainly there are obviously possibilities we can speculate on. Again, I don't necessarily believe that, but certainly people are going to wonder exactly what is happening here and what did happen to these people. Now, let us also clarify that, too. This was their sole experience. Nothing happened after this. That's correct. Okay. Yes. No abductions. Um, They did possibly have some other sightings, but um, only one abduction. I I should stress, incidentally, uh, once you've been abducted or had a good sighting, it wouldn't be unexpected for people to be looking a little bit more more carefully at the sky and paying attention to what was going on around them. You know, and also I should add, of course, this is New Hampshire. It's not Smogland or any places like that. It's a beautiful sky. My first time to really see the Milky Way, believe it or not, was in New Hampshire at a camp when I was uh, between my junior and senior years of high school because the sky was so much cleaner there than it was in New Jersey where I grew up. Oh, please. I haven't lived in any place, I think, that had clean air. Here in the Phoenix, Arizona area, we have pollution that's as bad as anywhere. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. 
Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Let's stop the pollution. Tell our listeners you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We have two more segments to spend with Stanton Friedman and Kathleen Martin, co-authors of Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience, also subtitled The True Story of the World's First Documented Alien Abduction. David Bietney, please take over the mic. So after this all happened, there were these dreams that Betty was having, and I wonder if you can elaborate on the nature of those dreams. For five nights, and I, and I want to state that Barney was at work when this was happening, she would wake up in the morning and have dreams or nightmares. Some of them had a nightmare-like quality, mm-hmm. and some of the information in those dreams was information that she actually remembered and had told people about, and then it progressed into uh, an abduction. Now, the people that she encountered in the dreams looked pretty human. They had black hair. They were about five feet to five and a half feet tall. They were dressed in blue-gray uniforms. They looked like they had short zippered jackets, very different from what Betty and Barney described under hypnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, she was given a physical examination. Uh, she was shown the star map. She was questioned and about her favorite foods and that sort of thing. And, you know, some of this reappeared in the uh, hypnosis sequence. But everything in the dreams involved 1961 technology. The star map was like a classroom geographical map that pulled down from the wall, two-dimensional, and snapped back into the wall onto the wall just like it would in a classroom so what betty did is she found the dreams to be rather disturbing and she jotted the information down on a notepad and she stored it in her bedroom in a drawer and uh tried to forget about it but she couldn't forget about it in november which would have been about two months after she actually had the dreams she decided to rearrange them in what she thought would have been a sequential order and to type them out and it ended up being a five-page written report titled dreams or reality so in a nutshell that's uh that's what happened did barney have any kind of dreams along these lines anything comparable no, he, he really couldn't remember having any dreams. Uh, he, he didn't start to dream about abduction until he was uh, in sessions with Dr. Simon. I, I should stress here that every indication is that Barney was under much tighter control by the aliens than Betty was. Hmm. One reason might be that gun that was in his pocket. Uh, another was his sensitivity. Uh, remember his comment about he felt like a rabbit that was going to be captured when he was out in the field there. He was sensitive as a black man who was aware of being vulnerable. Awkward way to put that, but uh, but I think it, it's accurate. And so how he reacted and how Betty reacted reflect their different circumstances. Remember, Betty is somebody who uh, her family came over, what, 1630, 1640, kind of thing? Yeah, I don't know, something like that. And so Betty knew who she was. 
There was no question about that. Her mother lived in the same house for how long, Kathy? It was a long time. Well-established. Long time. Uh, Well-established family and stuff. Uh, Barney's situation was different. He had ancestors who were slaves. And so, you know, there's a big sociological gap here in their backgrounds. One wouldn't expect them to react the same to the same kind of stresses. Mm-hmm. After the in the aftermath of this, how did their attitudes about this phenomenon change? Did it sounds like Barney was very skeptical about this beforehand? Anything to do with UFOs? How about afterwards? Did he um, did he have more of an open mind about this? And what about Betty? The rest of her life, did she get involved in doing research along uh, about this topic? Yes, actually, Barney did develop more of an open mind about it, particularly after the hypnosis sessions with Dr. Mm -hmm. Simon. Uh, He said that what he relived under hypnosis was just the same as if he were to, to say, I went to work last week and this happened to me at work and then I returned home and this happened. It was, it fit in and uh, he was able to accept it as being reality for him. And, and so he became better adjusted, I would say, in his acceptance of the, the fact that he felt that this had actually happened to him. And uh, what was the second part of your question? Oh, well, how about Betty? <laughs> right, right. Did her interest okay, grow um, in the topic after yeah, that, this? death, Betty became more and more interested in the topic and when she retired from work in the mid-70s she devoted more and more time to doing UFO investigations on her own. She formed a group of observers who watched the sky at night and uh, for UFOs and she also worked with several people who felt that they had been abducted and did these investigations and, and gave support to these people. Betty had lots of visits from people who felt that at least she would understand and wouldn't ridicule their UFO stories, especially if they involved a possible abduction. She was a safe person to talk to. And I should stress, and it's been my own experience, that although most people believe in UFOs, determined by polls and so forth, most people believe that most other people don't. And so they're very fearful. When I check my audiences, uh, 10% was at the end of my lecture, uh, believe they will admit that they've seen a UFO, what, what they think I would think was a UFO. But then when I ask how many of you reported what you saw, 90% of the hands go down. So there, it is much safer. I mean, my lectures, flying saucers are real. I must be okay to talk to you. See, I'm not going to laugh at them. And so Betty became a magnet for people who didn't want to be laughed at, but did want their experience validated. This seems to be a normal human uh, emotion, if you will, validation, acceptance. Believe me, I had this experience. Don't laugh at me. This, this is a major part of the UFO phenomena. Well, certainly, it's really hard to talk about this in mixed company. Um, it's almost impossible, and, and, uh, and that was the reason I asked the question before about what was the reaction to this on the part of their inner circle, because obviously, to talk about these things instantly creates problems in one's life. I know all about this problem, and I don't think that things have really changed much in in the last 40 or 50 years. I think it's still real problematic to talk about this. Um, well, I think 
There have been some changes, but what hasn't changed is the fear of the ridicule. But the fact that the media has paid so much attention, positive or negative, at least it, it's brought the subject more out of the closet. And uh, I'm still looking forward to this being a great year because the final recognition in response to that Chicago Tribune article on January 1st about the O'Hare Airport sightings by United Airlines employees on last November 7th, the fact that that article on the front page of the Trib above the fold got more hits than any other article they have ever published on any subject, and that the article about the UFO sighting, that was well done, led the list for four days. It's never happened before. And even the Trib wrote an article saying that they were bowled over by the fact that the reporter had calls from all over the world, that there was serious interest. And I think that led to the greater coverage of the French putting their files on the Internet. And Fife Symington, he'd been the governor of Arizona in 1997 when the Phoenix Lights were observed and had poo-pooed it back then. He admitted that he had seen the lights, he had been a fighter pilot, he was convinced of extraterrestrial origin. Uh, that story, just a few months ago, got far more coverage than it otherwise would have gotten. And all of this may help bring people to acceptance. But we're still dealing with people who know you, who know you've never lied, told stories, made up things, will accept what you say. Hey there, listeners. Have you ever thought about hosting your website? You know where you can actually host your blog or your web page? Well, I'll tell you where to go. Host I Can. Host I Can. And as a matter of fact, they provide all our hosting, too, for this site. And guess what? Their price starts at only $7 a month. How could you go wrong? It's reliability and speed speaks for itself. And that's why we're able to provide you with this radio show that you're listening to right now. It's host. I can give them a try. You'll be glad you did. Hey, all you have to do is go to our website, thepowercast.com and scroll down a little bit. You'll see a host. I can banner. That's a host. I can banner at thepowercast.com. Click on that banner and you'll learn more about host. I can where we host our sites. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We have about 10 minutes to spend with Stan Friedman and Kathleen Martin. They are the authors of Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience. And this is one of the fastest two-hour sessions we've ever had on the show. Good. I'll tell you that. Good. Stan, I interrupted you and take my apologies. You were about to say... No, uh, just that things are changing. And uh, Kathleen and I will both be speaking at the MUFON conference uh, August 9th and 10th, I guess it is, this year in Denver. 
Kathy's going to be talking about new information on the Betty and Barney Hill case. Her paper will be in the proceedings of the conference. Now, I'll be talking about 60 years after Roswell, and uh, I will be at the 60th anniversary celebration of Roswell. So uh, things are moving on, but... I expect that this book will bring out the nasty, noisy negativists without a doubt because they're always there to jump on something that jeopardizes their their conceited notions that there's nothing to this subject and they can deal with all of the stories. But it will also bring out other people who've had experiences, other people who've wanted to talk to somebody and will now feel, I hope, more ready to listen to other people's experiences because I think well, this book is going to shape things up a little bit. Uh, this weekend I attended on Saturday the Culture of Contact event in New York City. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I was curious to see who would show up. And unfortunately, Stan, this continues to be a really polarized situation. <laughs> and, well, the fact that you use the term nasty, noisy negativists, okay, yeah. is comparable to what someone asked me when I asked Bud Hopkins on Saturday about whether there had been an attempt to tabulate and to analyze incidents of abduction on a global scale and to try to see if there was a correspondence between areas where there are large numbers of reports of abductions and the technological sophistication of these areas, um, there were people snickering in the audience, and someone came up to me afterwards and said, are you a skeptic? And, uh, What's wrong with being a skeptic? <laughs> well, I, I said to him, well, you know, understand, try to understand what you're actually asking me. Are you asking me if I fit into A box or B box? Am I a skeptic? Does that mean that the opposite of that is a believer? You know, I understand what you're saying about the nasty, noisy negativists, but at the same time, this idea that being skeptical somehow means that you don't, A, want to believe, and B, you don't think any of this is real. I think that's I just, it's unfair, because I think it's really important to be skeptical about this topic and to understand that certainly there is something going on. Kathleen, I had asked you before about details about the cigar ship your mother saw, because in the mid-70s, uh, myself, my family, and a few thousand other people witnessed one of these cigar ships with the discs coming out of it and the whole thing disappearing. So it's not like I... I don't want to come across uh, as someone who is, uh, as Stan would say, one of the nasty, noisy negativists. Well, he's um, not talking about healthy skepticism. He's talking about people who intentionally distort facts. Sure. Well, it's necessary. But, but again, I think part of the problem is polarization. And certainly we see this problem throughout our society pretty much at every level. Um, you're either with us or against us. You're a Democrat or you're a Republican. You're conservative or you're liberal. They're, they're it's very difficult to try to stake out a centrist position and to say, look, obviously something is going on here. Obviously something happened to Betty and Barney Hill that night. Obviously. I don't think they would have gone public with it had something not happened. I, I've always wondered about them at a personal level that this was a multiracial couple at a time when being a multiracial couple was really daring. It wasn't something that was ex as, as relatively acceptable as it is now. That's always, though, made me wonder about this idea of publicity. And, and again, just to, to play devil's advocate for a moment, I, I've wondered, all right, so you can go two ways with this, where 
they didn't want it to really become public because of the fact that it it would jeopardize their careers or was it that maybe they would have wanted to go public because they were fighting for social equality and this would have given them more visibility i mean there's that old saying you know any publicity is good publicity and i don't necessarily believe that well Uh, they didn't that either Okay, good, good. So, you know, just understand that. There's healthy agnosticism. When people ask me, what do you say to the skeptics? I say, I don't aim my lecture at the skeptics. I want to aim it at people who says, gee, um, I don't know whether these things are real or not. Tell me why you think they are, and I'll I'll make my own choice up. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm talking about debunked them, if you will. And the point is that... You know, I don't feel uh, I should give people a free platform uh, sometimes on shows when people call in and they give entirely wrong information. I don't think I should give them a free platform to express views which clearly are not defined by facts and data. Now, let me give you an example of what I mean. I spoke to a Gulf Research Lab a dinner and a talk years ago in Pittsburgh, and some guy interrupted me three times, and each time I said, look, I'll be talking about that later, and the second time, finally the third time the chairman said hey let him finish okay in the question and answer period i naturally called on this guy and he said well i'm absolutely sure people could come to other conclusions than the one you've come to and i said well as i recall i asked about five large-scale scientific studies who had read them you didn't raise your hand for any of them did you well no he said and i said well that's the difference between us i give you my conclusion and i give you the data on which i base those conclusions you haven't looked at that data whose opinion is worth more there was not another word out of him <laughs> because i didn't feel it was appropriate to engage in discussion with the guy who hasn't looked at the evidence darn it <laughs> darn it we don't have much time left about three minutes Kathleen Martin, tell me a little bit in your final comments about the book Captured. Well, as I mentioned earlier, it is a uh, biographical account of Betty Hill's life beginning in 1937. Certainly you couldn't write Betty's biography without including UFOs. So it did end up becoming a UFO book, but it is a book that is chock full of facts, of Betty's letters, of Betty's memoirs, of the hypnosis tapes, the the hypnosis information that nobody knows about to date. And all of that is in the book. I tried to stay away from expressing my own opinion as much as I could and just presenting factual information. I think she succeeded very well, incidentally, in what, what she's done. And I was very pleased that Stanton Friedman agreed to work with me on this to, to cover the star map uh, work that was done by Marjorie Fish and others and uh, to address the criticisms of the skeptics and the debunkers. It was an interesting experience for me to work with uh, Kathleen about this, uh, partly because I've uh, spent so much time talking about the the Hill case and had met the people, but mostly because she had facts at her fingertips. She had done her homework. It is rare in this field to find people who have really dealt with the data. And that's what I'm all about, is dealing with data. And I'm sure I sound impatient when I talk about nasty, noisy negativists, 
But I think it's time somebody stood up and to say that these are the guys who are the kooky ones. These are the guys who have their minds made up. They're always saying all kinds of phony baloney stuff about the people who have the experiences, but they're the ones who should be held up to uh, to the light and show that they have no basis for their opinions. Hey, thank you so much, Stanton Friedman. Kathleen Martin, welcome to our microphones. I hope that we'll have you back again because we have a lot of questions to ask about Betty and Barney Hill. The book, again, is called Captured, the True Story of the World's First Documented Alien Abduction. We'll have a link to the book so you can get an autographed version. Thanks, everyone, for joining us on the Paracast. It's been a pleasure. It was my pleasure. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.